2: So for folks who are just tuning in, our new listeners who may have learned about us in the last couple of weeks, uh, every week we push out a regular, a regular show. So that's Kristen and I breaking down all the polls that are coming out that week. Usually that comes out Wednesday or Thursday, depending on our schedules. We also try to every week do an interview with an industry leader. So that could be a reporter who covers polling. It could be a pollster. It could be a data scientist. It could be uh, a sample vendor expert. It could be an academic type person uh, like someone at Pew or Gallup. We try to get to those every week. We don't always get to them every single week. So this week we have an interview with Anna Greenberg. When we do these interviews, they're frequently with Skype. Sometimes you can hear it cut in and out just a little bit. But when we do the regular show, usually Kristen and I try to be in the sound booth together at the same time. So it sounds a little bit different. Uh, So hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much. Well, Anna, we're so excited to have you. Anna Greenberg is partner at GQR Research, and we've had other folks from your shop on, uh, on the show before, but we're really excited to have you. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So, well, first, I just want to get this squared away. So one of my favorite things on Facebook right now is Anna posts pictures of herself doing conference calls in wild locations, like... <laughs> at a farm on the street with a like trash bag because it's raining or like next to a pig or at the beach. So uh, where are you now? And can you take a picture of, (laughs) of this call and post it on Facebook?
1: Well, I am on vacation, uh, in Delaware at Lewis beach, and I cannot take a picture because I'm on vacation. So I don't really feel like the world needs to see me in my, uh, my vacation. <laughs>
2: <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. But it is nonetheless one, one of the good, like sub m- sub memes of, uh, of democratic Facebook going on right now. Um, yeah, it's
1: mostly because, um, you know, I have, I'm a mom and I have, I run a company and I have a full client load. And so I end up doing conference calls in weird places because I'm always making sure that I'm spending the time I need to with my kids. So I may be on a conference call while we're shopping for mattresses.
0: But that's sort of why these pictures started. This feels like this feels like it deserves its own Tumblr. Like, there was that Tumblr uh, maybe a couple of years ago where people would post pictures. Actually, I wasn't sure quite how I felt about this one, but it was people would post pictures of their kids who were crying and then, like, just a small caption of, like, why their kid was crying. And it was always something like, they wanted the blue M&Ms, not the red M&Ms. You know, like something... Um, this seems to me like it has the potential to be a good Tumblr, like conference calls in weird places, just like people submitting pictures of all of the bizarre places that they've had to. Try to get business done.
2: Right, exactly. I mean, it's good because it's like I'm getting my work done. Everybody, you know, but it's also like very relatable. Certainly, I can relate to having to do calls in crazy places for sure. And as far as the like photos of crying kids, I, that's like the gallows humor of parenthood. You don't quite know until you get there. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, I, I must mock my children in order to like <laughs> make it through the day. <laughs> At least that's how I feel. Um, So, Anna, tell us a little bit about, for our listeners who, uh, the few listeners who may not uh, know a little bit about GQR, tell us a little bit about your background and about the firm.
1: Well, the firm was founded in 1980 in my basement in New Haven, Connecticut, by Father Stan Greenberg. So the company's been around for 36 years. I mean, it's certainly no Gallup or Harris, but it's pretty pretty high up there in terms of longevity, particularly with mostly the same partners. Um, I worked after school uh, photocopying and doing data entry. I even was a caller for a while. I still remember the script. Hi, this is Anna. Uh, I'd like to ask you a few questions about the issues facing your state and local community. Can I speak to the oldest uh, or the youngest male at home right now? Um, So I did that. And then I, (laughs) I've done every job as a programmer, but I went to graduate school and got a PhD in political science and actually had intended to be uh, an academic. And I taught uh, intros, data analysis, survey research methods, public opinion for about four years. And then I decided to leave and join, um, my father's firm. And so I've, I've been here for about, this will be my 15th year. So it's, it's been a while.
0: I want to ask you about, um, the, the sort of the, the world of academia versus the world of practical you know, working in in the polling space. I remember back a couple of years ago, I had toyed with the idea of, I thought, you know, man, maybe I really want to go to graduate school and get that PhD. And I got waved off of it because I sort of was told, oh, you know, it's it's just, it, it operates in a totally different universe than practical politics and you'll get frustrated. And now, you know, I'm starting to see all kinds of academics, folks who are working at universities, they're publishing stuff that's also getting attention immediately and changing the way campaigns work. I'd be interested in your advice to anybody who is sort of dealing with that same question of Do I want to do graduate school in academia, or do I want to do um, work at a firm, work in practical politics? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I tell people when they're interested in getting a PhD that they should go in with the intention that they want to be an academic, that they want to teach, and if they're able to do other things like engage in you know, acti- engage in research that's relevant politically in the moment, that that can be something they can do on the side. But that if you're going to make it to graduate school and actually get a job in academia, you have to focus on what it means to succeed in academia. And for many people, including myself ultimately, which is why I left, a lot of it doesn't feel terribly current or relevant. So um, there certainly are the lucky academics who like for the Upshot and Monkey Cage um, and those sorts of websites. But that's really... Um, the exception. Um, most political scientists are publishing in academic journals, trying to publish books, teaching, and, and trying to work on getting tenure. And so, um, it's uh, you really have to be committed to um, to be an academic. And then, if you want hope, you can do something more practical. But it's very difficult to merge the two because the requirements to succeed in academia are are really, really heavy, and stringent, and narrow, and challenging. <laughs>
2: So tell us a little bit about how you think the industry has changed since either since the firm started or since in the fifteen years that you've been working yeah. in polling. I mean, I've been doing the, I've been in polling here for almost twenty years. I mean, it's certainly changed in terms of the automation that's available and the you know some of the ease of of simply getting things done. That stuff is faster for sure. But how do you? There's been so many new firms and so many more people writing and studying polls closely. Lots of armchair critics, but Response rates, all of that. What do you see as the big tre- trends in how the industry's changed?
1: Well, that's um, that's a, a whole topic unto itself, and, and there are different dimensions. There's how has data collection changed with the rise of first technology to prevent people from getting you on the phone, <laughs> to um, which now seems so quaint, you know, call blocking, call ID, and that you know, sort of cell phones, and so. There's just the challenge of data collection, and it's gotten, as you know, more expensive and harder to gather quality data. And then you've got changes in the industry itself with the rise of, you know, sort of media-driven polling, which used to be fairly elite with kind of the major broadcasting national newspapers, and now anybody can do an IVR, which is a you know interactive voice recognition, like a push-button poll, for two or three or four thousand dollars. And so you have the absolute proliferation of polls using fairly cheap methods to gather data at a time when it actually takes more money to gather high-quality data. So you have this um, weird state of affairs where you have people in kind of private, political polling and even market research subdegree degree doing very different research than you see in the public polling. So, and it's the, the intersection of kind of polling as a business with the challenge of quality data collection And it's created, in in some sense, it's been really exciting because it's led to all kinds of innovation about how you do include people on cell phones, how you can use online research. And on the other hand, you know, you get these questions about is polling broken because public polls tend to not be very good. And they're not good because they don't spend the money to do quality data collection, not because polling is broken. So it's a very interesting time to to be a pollster. And I think that we all have to constantly do research internally, like R&D, to make sure that... For those of us who work on campaigns, and there's a right and wrong answer, you win or lose. That we are constantly challenging ourselves to do better and high-quality data collection, but operating under the constraint of a very competitive marketplace and a lot of public polling, um, that in some ways makes what we do um, less valuable for certain clients, anyway.
0: Do you think that the fact? I mean, I, I think that the fact that there are democratic and Republican firms in some ways has. I think that the audiences that Democrats tend to to talk to a lot, uh, needing to reach them and understanding the way that traditional, you know, landline polling was failing to reach those folks early on, I think was part of the drive for why Democratic firms seem to sort of get this, hey, we need to be calling cell phones, hey, we need to be doing X, Y, and Z stuff a little faster than the folks on the Republican side. Do you think there are are any other sort of differences between what you do at a Democratic firm and what your perception is of what folks at Republican firms do? I, I do get asked a lot, you know, well, what's the difference between an R and a D firm besides, you know, I guess they just work for Republicans and Democrats. I mean, do you see any differences between the Democratic side and the Republican side?
1: Um, I, first of all, overall, no. I think that the, the methods that you use to gather data um, and gather it accurately are the same whether you're a Democrat or Republican. So I, I don't, in principle, there should be no reason that there's a difference. I think the differences that you're talking about around, I think, greater sophistication on the Democratic side with using analytics and modeling and um, sort of doing pioneering research on how to include cell phones um, comes because there's kind of an institutional Commitment to that kind of work largely driven by the labor movement And so there's been a lot of investment made on the Democratic side on building good voter databases accurate modeling um, sophisticated data collection techniques and you don't have the same institutional commitment to that on the Republican side and to be Totally frank. I think given the current nominee who has is dismissive of kind of sophisticated analytic work in politics I'd be shocked if there's a big institutional commitment to that this cycle and the problem for Republicans is the longer they go without kind of an institutional commitment to doing the internal R&D is that their techniques fall kind of farther farther behind. I do want to add one other thing, though. One of the reasons why I think Democrats were better at including cell phone research was that, you know, for our side, you know, we tend to have a, a, a base, an electoral base that is more minority, younger, urban. Well, those are the voters that are hardest to reach on a landline. So we've had the necessity of doing we necessarily do accurate research for us when we think about how to win campaigns. We have to have an accurate sample of African-Americans, Latinos, millennials. And so that has forced Democrats, I think, earlier than Republicans to make sure that we change our techniques to make sure those respondents are included. And I think one of the problems in the 2012 election was that the pollsters from Mitt Romney, for whatever reason, didn't really have enough cell phone interviews. They really underestimated the minority in the youth vote in that, in that election primarily because of the way they were gathering
0: data.
2: So, you know, when we talk about polling and people talk about the industry, there's a lot of focus on data collection, cell phones, statistics, modeling. But a lot of campaign internal polling really requires a fine ear in terms of messaging, strong writing, make sure the questions are as strong as possible, that respondents understand them. You're not simply asking who are you going to vote for, Trump or Clinton. You're really trying to convey something that can then be translated into paid communications. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's a different skill set than statistical modeling.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the big differences between media or public polling and campaign polling is that campaign polling has to be strategic. In other words, you can't just describe what's happening um, in the electorate, but um, actually use that data to tell a campaign or an advocacy group. Um, this is the message you need to convey. Here's who you need to convey it to. Here's the right contrast with your opponent. And so you, there, this is where the art comes in. I mean, that you can be perfectly... Competent at the science, but if you don't know how to understand um, the political environment, the issues people care about, the things that drive voting decisions, the kinds of um, the kind of information and knowledge you need to write a survey that allows you to be strategic, um, then the data are of, of limited value and. By the way, that is one of the places where I think my academic background has been helpful because, I mean, I know a lot about the nature and origin of public opinion. I know, to quote <laughs> to quote a famous uh, John Zahler book on um, how people form opinion, and, you know, the insights of cognitive psychology and, you know, looking at political history, and, I mean, there's just a whole set of different disciplines that come into understanding public opinion. So, um, I think our strength as a firm and many other Democratic polling firms is that, you know, we're willing to kind of go out on a limb and say, here's what the environment looks like and here's what you need to do to either change it or maintain it. And honestly, that's what makes political polling interesting, too. Um, I mean, I could work in any, any place writing poll questions that just describe the situation, but to actually try to make the leap to strategy is, is much more interesting. And I would say that we're very um, uh, we're very direct about it. When we write a polling memo, we say, "Here's the situation. Here's what you need to say. Here's who you need to say it to." Now, that is always based on the core values and positions of the candidate. We're not creating about a whole cloth, but nevertheless, it's very it's that specific. And then the media consultant and the, po- the direct mail consultant and the digital, they will use that information
0: to shape their paid communications and who they're talking to. So, if you had to think then about all of the questions. That you have put into questionnaires over the years, um, and this is sort of a big question. Uh, but what do you think is the the, que- the the question that you've asked that has been the most kind of unusual? Um, and and if again, if this is for like a private client, you don't have to say. But I mean, f- what is the most sort of unusual question you can think of that you've put into a survey uh, that you can tell us about on the show? <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, the the example does not come from politics, because, of course, I do other research, too. I do Mm -hmm. issue research for advocacy groups um, and people who are trying to do public public education campaigns on public issues, on public health. And so I did a project many years ago for the Humane Society where I was looking at uh, the Katrina-affected states and the actions people took to spay and neuter their cats and dogs. So I would say the questions you ask about spraying and neutering are some of the more unusual questions that I, <laughs> I've been you know, so. and, and for Nike an to focus groups on so it too. So a lot of uh, anthropomorphizing of people's pets, and um, it was it was um, it was a really
0: interesting project. Oh, amazing!
2: So, um, so what about? Let's talk a little bit about. Gen- I did. I, oh, sorry, go ahead. I
1: well, I, said, I did I did challenge my boyfriend recently to tell me, to, to say, ask me a question. I probably asked it on a poll. I said, I challenge you to come up with something I haven't asked in a poll in 15 years of doing this. And he actually stumped me and wanted to know if we tracked God's job performance. So we track it. <laughs> is God doing a good job or a bad job, right? And then when things are good. So track that over time and see if that was a a variable that could predict something in politics. And I've tried a number of times to put it, flip it into a survey and never have successfully gotten God's job performance um, in a survey, but
2: um, it's going to happen someday. Oh my God. That is so funny. <laughs> that is a good idea. And I <laughs> definitely would, definitely would make news. I would definitely trump the latest PPP, like, you know, how well is Cecil the lion doing in the horse race kind <laughs> of question.
1: <Exactly. laughs> it's I'm series. You track it right to, to events that happen in the world.
2: Right, right, right. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. Um, So talk a little bit about uh, being a woman in the industry. Um, You know, th- on the democratic side, we like to, or at least that's part of our thing. We like to, you know, have a diverse set, a, a diverse team, diverse advisors. It doesn't always quite work out that way. Can you talk a little bit about being a woman in the industry? Do you feel like there are unique challenges?
1: Um, I do think there's some unique challenges. I think the, I mean, first of all, there's just, you know, any any working mom knows that if you are um, in a professional services job, consulting, long hours, a lot of travel, but just balancing those things is um, is somewhat challenging to do. And I think that um, I, I do believe that men spend more time with their kids, but in the world I'm in, most of the men I work with have wives who either don't work full time or don't work. And it allows them to kind of go to every event to network, to do marketing, which I think is harder for some of the women I know in the industry. But I think that's true of any professional services firm. I don't think it's just true of political consulting. I think that the Democratic Party, like the Republican Party, is still, you know, even though, I mean, it's interesting, the DNC is run by women and the House Dems are run by women. And so there's a lot of women's leadership in the party, but it still is a somewhat male-dominated profession. And I find it ironic because if you look at the voters that Democrats target, it's usually women. And I've sat around a lot of tables where men tell me what we should be saying to women voters. And I'm wondering, why aren't there more women at the table saying what we should say to women voters? And that's one of the things that's most striking, even with the diversity of the Democratic Party and its leadership, um, the consulting base is not that diverse. And there still is this sense that, among some anyway, that these kind of uber media consultant men can kind of come in and say, I know what we say to women. And it has changed what campaigns have done. Um, but there's a lot of mansplaining about what women want and what they want to hear in my profession.
0: You know, that's always a a dynamic that I, I never quite know how to navigate because on the one hand, you know, when I walk into a meeting with other Republican pollsters, many of whom are men, many of whom are older than me, on the one hand, I do feel like if we're talking about how should we reach young women, I've done a lot of research on that topic. You know, if, if an older man is trying to tell me, here's what I think we should do to talk to younger women, I'm... You know, there's that. Uh, okay, th- thank you for explaining my own demographic to me. On the other hand, you know, I don't want to lean in too heavy to that because then that becomes the only thing. Okay, well, is that the only thing then that I, I I know about? You know, I I actually can do research that explains how to talk to you know older men who care about national security in rural parts of Florida and things like that. So that is always something. I mean, how do how would you recommend for a young woman in the industry? then navigating that. On the one hand, having this unique expertise to understand this very important voter group, but on the other hand, not wanting to be pigeonholed into being, you know, the person who you turn to to do the quote-unquote chick poll.
1: Sure. And and by the way, I think this is true of of consultants who are of color. I think, you know, African-American or Latino— um, polsters are seen as the people who can speak to that and nothing else. And that's obviously not true. Um, so I, I think there's a few things. I mean, one, on the one hand, I think it's important to cultivate expertise and have a unique contribution. And I think being able to talk intelligently about millennial women is a unique contribution and we shouldn't shy away from doing it. It's our value add. You know, it's one value add at the table. On the other hand, you're right. I mean, people will then often pigeonhole women pollsters as the people who can talk about women and nothing else. And for me, what I've done is I've cultivated a lot of different kinds of clients, and I do a lot of uh, not just work but writing, you know, um, and public presentations where I talk about a lot of things besides women. And I do that on purpose. I could do a lot more writing on women. Uh, I could do a lot more speaking on women. I could I could, from a marketing perspective, pursue more actively getting women clients to women's organizations, but I deliberately cultivate working for men running for office and working on issues that are not gendered for that reason. So I think it's, I don't have a good answer except that you have to do both. And it's it's sort of unfortunate because nobody says to a white male pollster, the only demographic you understand are, are white men. They can be experts on everything. And so this is goes back to this whole, how is it different to be a woman in this industry? And I think you have to actively cultivate the non-gender work in order to have standing ultimately to kind of be at the table. Like winning a tough race with a man as your candidate, like is actually really helpful as a woman pollster, and it's kind of sad that that's the way it is. But it, it, that is the way it is.
2: Yeah. So, um, yeah. That's no. That's really good advice. I hadn't thought about that. Like making sure your uh, your portfolio is not overly gendered. I mean, I guess it's like you know, it's the same thing as. Actors or anybody else who seems like branded as your role as X. I remember going into a pitch once and saying, you know, here's what our capa- you know here are our capabilities. Would like to do some work with this group, and the political director of the group said, okay, well we have this person working to study women, and we have this person studying African Americans, and we have this person. And they ticked through like a couple different things. So where would you fit in? I'm like, well, I guess I would have to then just pull, you know women without children in their 20s or thirty, however old I was. So I gave my exact <laughs> demographic. I mean, it just seemed ridiculous that that's how it works because obviously the whole point of being a pollster is that you're supposed to be able to understand everyone. If you can't figure that out, then then this is not really the career for you. You're supposed to be able to listen to people who are not like your own demographic. Otherwise, you should go into a different kind of field completely. But I guess somehow that gets – sometimes that doesn't quite make it into translation.
0: Nobody, don't become the Katherine Heigl of the polling industry. <laughs> right,
2: exactly. <laughs> exactly. So what other advice would you give to folks? We have a lot of grad students and young folks who want to go into the field, probably a lot more than when we all started in this business where people weren't quite sure what being a pollster was. Now you have a lot of folks who really want to go into polling. What would you recommend for young folks starting out?
1: Um, I would suggest go working on a couple campaigns because I think it's really helpful to know when you're giving advice to a campaign, what they actually do with that advice, how they spend that money, what they tell their people knocking on doors. It's just, you're much better at understanding how to use the data, making it actionable, which is one of the things that people don't really create actionable information. I also would recommend getting a master's degree or at least coursework in econometrics, survey research design. It's not to succeed in the business. There's plenty of people who don't have it. But I just think as it's becoming more and more complicated to do high-quality research, that skill set just strikes me as increasingly important. And it sort of just teaches you how to think about survey research in a way that you wouldn't if you didn't have some of that training. Um, I personally would not recommend someone get a PhD who wants to be a pollster simply because I think it is so hard to become one that most people sort of work there at this point from the bottom up. But if you, you know, if it's intellectually really important, if you have one and you might want to be an academic, sure, go get a PhD. There's no question that I know how to think about how to answer a question or how to design a research project differently because of my academic training. And a different, I think, level, and that sounds modest, but I think there's a different level of depth um, because of that training, but I don't think it's absolutely necessary to be a pollster.
0: Well, you've made me feel a little bit better about my decision not to go pursue the Ph.D., so thank you. <laughs> that's good. You've that's helped good. me continue to think through this long past decision. All right. Office <laughs> hours
2: with Anna. We had a good office hour with Anna
0: today. <laughs> I, was, I was
1: glad to help. Um,
2: <laughs> so how can people find you on Twitter if they want to know what you're up to?
1: Okay. My Twitter handle is uh, Anna underscore Greenberg. Pretty easy.
2: Okay, excellent. And how do people, folks, find the firm?
1: Well, our website is GQRR.com. It stands for Greenberg, Quinlan, Rosner Research.
2: Great. Okay, well, thank you so much, Anna. We really appreciate it. We'll let you get back to your well-deserved vacation.
1: Thank you very much. Happy to do it. Thank you for doing this. Okay, bye-bye.